Life in Sense with Joe Barrett and Odette Toilette. There's never a point when you're playing a Stradivari where you feel that you're pushing against the limitations of the instrument and that you, you're, you're needing to find more. What musicians are looking for is the best possible tool of their trade. If they're a pianist, they'd be going for the latest Steinway grand piano. Flautists, clarinetists, everybody else, the best instrument is the best engineered instrument right now. And funnily enough, with violins, because they seem to get better with age, an instrument which is 300 years old is the equivalent of the brand new piano and so forth. Benjamin Hebert, a London-based dealer in stringed instruments, is one of the world's foremost experts on violins and instrument making. A former curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, an European specialist for Christie's Auction House, Benjamin now buys and sells for a client base of professional musicians for whom he helps find the perfect instrument. The world of strings is, perhaps unexpectedly, one where an absence of smells is a mark of quality and authenticity. An odour is a sign that something might not be quite right. There's, there's actually surprisingly little smells with, with violins, and actually sort of one of, one of the surprises is that with, with everything that, that, that the violin has as an object, uh, smells, smells when they're, they're, they're important when they're important, but, uh, but also they're, uh, there's a surprisingly small array. We're, we're really conservative about the kind of materials that we, we use. With that sort of blank palette, it does mean that when things are up with an instrument, then sometimes that really comes into into play. There was an instrument from the 1690s, a, a bass viol, which I looked at recently. We we just didn't know what it was made out of because the wood had varnish on it and it had and it had become ex- extremely old. There's a there's a problem with a lot of wood that the the cellular structure. You, know, you can take it to Kew Gardens and they'll be able to tell you with a microscope exactly what the wood is when it's relatively new. But particularly with fruit woods and things like that, you can't tell the difference between pear or plum or palisander if it's three or four hundred years old because it just becomes, you know, microscopically it just morphs into generic fruit wood. So there's this, this one instrument, we couldn't make head to tail of it. We had sort of some ideas that it might be by Michael Holichon, who's the great French maker of the 1690s, his, his responsible for the whole French revival and virtuoso. And when we look at his instruments, we see a whole mismatch of wood. So there was a possibility that there are open questions, but I think for about 30 years people have been looking at the instrument and really couldn't, couldn't tell anything about it. It had a wonderful painted inscription on the back saying that it was owned by one of the great court musicians. And if you've got a painted inscription saying something like that, it's probably fake. Uh, or it might be genuine, as, as this case. It turned out in the end, having a look at it closely, that as you, started, as, as you got it close to your face, suddenly this amazingly sort of 
almost soapy vanilla f- smell started to sort of come come from it, and that's the smell which you get from lime wood. And although there was nothing that we could do forensically at any level to to work out what the wood was, just by smelling it, we had case closed that it was lime wood, and uh, yes, microscopically, it looked like a wood which could also be lime wood. Then looking at other instruments by the same maker, we knew that there's bits of lime wood here, there, and, and, and everywhere, and that it then fitted in a body of work. So, so we went from a sort of rather spurious instrument, which no one could make head to tail of, into putting it in, in, in the canon of work for one of France's greatest makers. One of, one of the features of, of new violins is, is that the varnish is is still smelly. I mean, varnish and paint are, are essentially the same things, and when you do your home decorating, you're expecting the paint to be giving off smell for some weeks to come. The way that a varnish or a paint works is that you've got, you, you've got your pigments and, and everything are, are held within a medium which, which evaporates off over time, which can be oil or spirit. So when we're looking at an old instrument, that's not that that's not going to be producing any smells at all. If we're looking at an instrument which is slightly newer, well, if it, if the instrument's a bit too new or someone's been playing with the varnish or something like that, then it can often hold its own smells. You can you can hide the smells fairly well, but then there's ways of you know getting the smells back. So, for example, vigorously rubbing the back of the instrument with the back of your hand or with a sleeve will produce enough heat and and friction that anything which wants to evaporate is going to is going to be given a little a little help. I remember once somebody came in to, to see me with some nineteen twenties violins which were if they're Italian and what they're supposed to be, they were they would have been worth tens of thousands of pounds. And they clearly weren't what they were supposed to be and I couldn't get the guy out of my office until I've I'd found some kind of proof positive that but actually, I thought that he'd made them himself. And in the end, just being able to rub, rub the violin vigorously with my sleeve and, and getting, the, getting the oils in the varnish to, to reactivate gave, gave the instrument this wonderful smell of, of fresh varnish. And I wouldn't have been able to do that on a 1920s instrument. And it was what sort of peacefully got him out of the door. But it's also one of the tests which I'll do if I've got suspicions about something. I used to be the, the specialist for Christie's, and uh, when I worked there, I worked in New York in a in a vault which was about four four stories under Rockefeller Center. And the bane of my existence was that this was the one temperature controlled area in the entire building, and because we we had an abnormally large number of things which were which needed temperature control and so forth, that's where my desk was. And I came there after a lengthy and uh, incredibly tiring and frustrating business trip once and plonked next to my desk was an Egyptian mummy. I didn't look too far but sharing your office with an Egyptian king was uh, was not a great, it, it just wasn't a great six weeks of my life because those things smell and they smell, you, you get the smell when you walk through the British Museum and there's this it it just gets you, and I don't know whether it's because it's such a particular smell, and I've known what 
those things which smell like that are all my life, but it's just a smell of, of sort of death, of corruption somehow. And, uh, Is it dusty? Very dusty. Uh, a very sort of rich, dusty, dusty smell. Yeah, I, I left my job after at Christie's a few months after that, and I've always wondered whether it was the Egyptian king's fault. instrument making and manufacture today, is that something that you would associate with a particular smell or set of smell? That's a completely different ball game from old instruments. There's so many things within within violin making which, which produces their own smells. So there's the production of varnish. We don't buy the varnish from the hardware centre. We uh, as, as violin makers, we make our own varnishes. We've, there's the whole, the whole mythology which, which ar- arises around the fact that we can't make a varnish which is, which is the same varnish that Stradivari used. And what we, one of the, the things that we talk about is that, or is that if we can't make an instrument that sounds like a Stradivari, and we can't make an instrument that has the same varnish as a Stradivari, therefore the varnish is the most important thing to the sound. And wherever the truth might lie on that, that leads to uh, obsessions. And for 200 years, really, yeah, violin makers have all intended to make their own varnishes. So you've got the wonderful sort of cooking smells of, of resins and, and, and turpentine. And, and the point of the year where you go out and, and cook your own varnish, it's, it's just got its own, its own wonderful smells. And of course, every time you... You varnish an instrument; those those smells come up again as you open your pot of varnish. And varnish making is an epic thing because you've got to do it outside. It's far too flammable. It takes it's something which takes you right into the into the night. So the best way of doing it is really sort of with a campfire outside on a nice sunny night. And on your own, or do you do it in teams? Secret? You want to keep your recipe? Quite quite a lot of people do it in teams. There's a huge amount of sharing these days with uh, with the violin world. When I was training back in the 1990s, we all knew that the great makers had their own their own secrets, but actually everyone in the sort of later generations shares. We use the internet, we've got access to various things, we get to see each other's instruments. And that le- leads us to being inspired by each other. And there's been a, a huge shift, and actually a huge shift in quality because of it. There's not a lot of smells that come from carving the, the wood, but when you're using scrapers in order to in order to smooth smooth it, it creates dust and dust gets it gets into your nose. So, but there's nothing unique about those smells. They're the smells of a workshop generally. Are all violins made of the same kind of wood? Nowadays, well, for the last sort of four hundred years, the maple typically comes from the Balkans. And the spruce typically comes from the Alps. And even in the, the early 17th century, we've got English sources which talk about cullen clef, which is the wood, the way that they express the wood. And that's wood which the English makers bought in the markets in Cologne, which is 
which is brought down the Rhine from, uh, from the Alps. It's just something which we don't really move from, and it, to the point that actually I think, you know, if you, if you go and meet a cabinet maker, they know an incredible amount about wood, and they'll use olive wood and all sorts of different things in order to create different, different effects on, their, on, on the things that they produce. But we have just those two woods, and the black wood, which is ebony for the fingerboards, and, and that's, that, that's it. I think, I think the widest variety of woods that you could find on a violin might be five. Because it's um, been so, the, the combination's been so long-standing, are there family firms who specialise in dealing, the, you know, how, how, what's the wood supply chain? In fact, there's, there's particular sort of valleys in the Alps where, where, where the properties of the wood are actually particularly good, and then there's, there's foresters who are, if, if not families, you know, village communities that have that, that have been foresting that area for for hundreds of years, and because for hun- for many of those years that wood has been used for making instruments, those are the ones that take that that take the wood down. Do you have any sense as a as a dealer or as a maker or as a player of that connection between the landscape, the trees, the forest, from where the violin came from to what the sound that's coming out of it and the feel of it and the object which is in your workshop in it it's it's a funny sense because almost always we just don't we we only see the wood once it's been reduced to sort of to to to, to the materials that we we want to use it for uh i mean there's been some wonderful times i i had a log of snake wood which is it's used to make baroque bows and that came into in, in into my workshop once and it was beautiful to see it uncut because what happens is that this this comes from South American rainforests. The trees are chopped down in in, in situ, and chopped in sort of meter meter long lengths or so, which is as much as a man can carry on his back. With the wood, when you strip the bark off with these trees, you you get a very light coloured wood, uh, for about an inch or so, and then after that inch or or two inches, then you get dark, beautiful wood, which is which is what there's a market for. So before he's strapped it on his back in the middle of the jungle, he's taken his, his ads and has stripped off all of the bark and all of that inch. So you get this... It was just amazing because you know, the only intention that I had with this, with, with this wood was, was because of its use in making Baroque bows. And yet all of a sudden you could see the tool marks of, of the guy in the, in the Amazon who'd... Uh, He'd, he'd been stripping this thing down because they'd been cutting it in, in situ in sort of a very specialised kind of cutting, but with everything that was primitive about that. You've got a stick, which is from Brazil. You've got other bits, the, the ebony, which uh, for the what we call the frog, the bit, the, the sort of the handle bit of the instrument. Why do you call it a frog? I don't know why we call this a frog. It's just called a frog. That's made of. I mean, typically the great ones would be ebony from Mauritius, and then the hair which we use. Uh, it's horse hair. These days you don't get horse hair which is about seventy centimeters and pure white in Europe. The hair tends to be too short, and it's too. There's you know people like a nice brown stallion or whatever. So there's not that many pure white horses. If you ever want a good pub 
question of what what what, what do you have which comes from outer Mongolia? It's actually the uh, the hair of the hair of a bow has been sourced from Mongolia for uh, for at least the last fifty years or so. But yeah, it's just an, an amazing array of things from from different countries which, which produce these things. Yes. To switch the question to you, is there a scent you can think of that might be paired with a violin? There's a perfume that makes me think of musical instruments, which is one called Cose, by... It's a niche type one by Perfumery Generale, and it's very warm and spicy and quite deep. It's very woody. I would I'd suggest you try it, Benjamin. I'll, I'll have a look. It's actually, it's it's such a fascinating thing with working with musicians is that they're looking for a particular sound and uh, and every single violin which you're able to show them, which has been made over three hundred years and in different designs and so forth, has fundamentally the same sound to them just like when you walk you, you walk down the street and someone's wearing aftershave and we all know that they're wearing aftershave and that's that's essentially yeah at first glance that's or first smell that that's what they're doing but actually that particular brand or that particular in the case of violins you know, there'll be people who buy one kind of aftershave and they absolutely won't touch another aftershave or perfume or whatever it is with all my confidence of how a violin sounds, and knowing that it's good and it's great and it's something which is going to take some, you know, someone through their professional career, that's 99.9% of what the violin is. But it's in that last point one where the musician who has actually got to live with this, with the sensation which this gives, uh, will decide that actually it's it's not the sound for them or it is the sound for them and that's where they love it and play it every day or they won't even consider buying it from me because it's it's nice, it's a violin, but it's not their sound. And I'm in a position where I possibly know these things or I know, I know the impact of these things slightly better than they might. And that's where I bring my expertise to them and try to give them that Take, take from the thousand instruments which are on the market at any one time, try to find the five or six which are my best guess as to what they're going to fall in love with. And, uh, and that's sort of, well, that's my job these days. You've been listening to Benjamin Hebert's Life in Sense. Life in Sense with Joe Barrett and Odette Toilette.